Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we're tackling a uh, difficult subject, to be sure. Uh, the the war in Gaza um, and, you know, this, the surrounding context there. Uh, it's, it's, uh, ooh, it's a tough subject to talk about, uh, for, for a variety of reasons, but we thought, you know, really there's, there's nothing else that, that needs to be talked about more. So we've got, uh, David Cleon, who's, uh, a, a, a former editor at, at Jewish Currents and, you know, longtime observer of, um, you know, Israeli history and politics and, uh, you know, general knowledgeable person to 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 work work through it with us. Um, yeah, people might remember him from a, a few different episodes on the Ukraine Russia conflict. Um, uh, you know, another complex, terrible situation to to think through. Um, and so he's he's with us and does a another great job. And the piece he wrote um, just the other day was a, a really great piece that we'll link to. But um, it's it's definitely a topic that we could have gone on uh, for three more hours and, and still had things to discuss. But uh, but we do our best to try to dive into the immediate context and the broader historical context and, and get through some of the the salient questions, both kind of realpolitik questions and questions of the of the heart and of principle and uh, that are relevant to um, what we. And, and those of you who are Americans can do right now. And, uh, and all of that just also side by side with the very human response to, um, to ethnic cleansing, genocide, and the atrocities uh, that kicked this all off. I mean, every human life is a universe. And it's just, it's so sad um, to think about it, to see the images, to hear the reporting. And uh, it's so scary to think about what's what's still to come because thousands and thousands of deaths um, have already occurred, um, and uh, and you know it's a bleak situation, but that makes it all the more important to talk through and think about, right? Absolutely, and I think especially because you know the 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 whole situation appears to be kind of up in the air to a great degree, um, you know the the. Uh, position of the United States and of European countries on the on the uh, Israel's possible invasion of Gaza appears to be unsettled, and so now is the time to speak up. I think uh, to 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 try to you know make our voices heard yes. as much as uh, they can be, and that's right. You know to urge restraint and you know uh, respect for human rights and international laws as much as possible. Um, and so, you know, we, 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 you know, we put a little kind of a pebble on a landslide type of thing, but, uh, you know, you never know, uh, you know, things, things can, things, uh, have changed quite a bit over the last, even the last 24 hours. Uh, we, you know, we're recording this on Sunday, October 15th. And so we hope to, you know, um, that that they'll continue shifting more in the direction of uh more more humanitarianism and less bloodthirsty vengeance. Um yes, that's right. And that's our hope. Our hope is to help catalyze thought and action in that direction. Um and uh obviously 
this is not going to be an exhaustive analysis or conversation about all the things that relate to what just happened, let alone the whole history. So, so keep that in mind. And, and I hope, um, I hope it's helpful for people to work through things and to, um, to help motivate action, uh, to save lives and to, to do what we need to do as human beings um, for a more just world with less uh, violence. Absolutely. But um, yeah, before we get to the interview with David, um, we got to note that this, uh, the podcast is sponsored by the American prospect magazine um, for uh, $5 a month on our Patreon liftanchor.com, You can get our bonus episodes for $10 a month. You can get a, a free digital subscription to the magazine. Um, otherwise, you know, uh, rate on apple podcasts or elsewhere send to your friends um or just listen we appreciate any support whatsoever so yeah um let's get to our our interview with david cleon right now hi david um welcome back to the show um after some time um and and we much appreciate you uh coming to discuss a a, a thorny topic to be sure um, I, I thought to sort of, you know, to, to frame the discussion a little bit, we could just talk about kind of what happened a little bit, you know, so like in, in broad strokes, basically it's, it's, it seems like, and, and you can correct me if I, if I miss anything here, but what, uh, it was on the sixth. So just over a week ago that Hamas did a surprise breakout attack, uh, from seventh, I believe but. seventh. Yeah. So, so about a week ago. Hamas did a breakout attack of Gaza from Gaza into, you know, the, the surrounding bits of Israel, the, uh, IDF, the Israeli military was totally caught off guard. And, uh, basically Hamas just, just massacred, uh, something like the last figure I saw was about 1300 people killed mostly civilians, number of soldiers too. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just unimaginable carnage in a, at a music festival, at a at a um, a collective farm, uh, and you know a number of other locations. Major humiliation for uh, you know Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, um, and now you know we have this uh, retaliatory attack on Gaza going on. Um, huge bombardment, especially in Gaza City, which is in the north. Gaza, of course, if folks don't know, is very small. I saw someone posting on Blue Sky, which I think is about accurate. It's about the same size as Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia. It's like 25-ish miles long, five miles wide. Really, really small uh, location uh, being heavily bombed. And uh, Israel has instituted a, a total blockade uh, uh, at least for, for a while it did, we can, we could talk about how maybe that's changing, but it was, you know, no water, no food, no fuel getting in. Um, and, and nobody allowed to leave through the Israeli checkpoints and the Israeli uh, government said that everyone should evacuate from, uh, North of the Gaza river, which is probably over a million people saying go to the South, you know, uh, which is like basically impossible, you know, to say go, go, go that many people cannot possibly move that quickly to the, 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 the south of Gaza. And, um, you know, 
it's all being waged with, uh, uh, at least initially, you had a lot of just outright genocidal rhetoric from, uh, you know, folks like the, the Israeli defense minister, Yoav Gallant, who, you know, said we were, we're fighting, quote, human animals, uh, a lot of other very violent uh, rhetoric coming. But so anyway, uh, can you, can you, any comments, at least on the initial situation, David, about like, like, uh, what happened and what this sort of, uh, uh, means in the immediate context? Yeah. So that's all about accurate. And, um, I think that in terms of the wider context in, in which it's occurred, uh, you know, the Gaza Strip doesn't exist as it does in, in, you know, as one of the most overcrowded places in the world, two million people in the little enclave you described. And now they're trying to squash two million into basically half of the enclave you described so they can bomb the other half. I mean, they already are bombing the other half, but so they can, um, I guess, you know, make some basic performance of, of respecting civilians as a concept, um, which I'm sure the U.S. government is urging them to do. But, you know, I think a lot of people, even if they understand this to basically be bad, that, you know, the Palestinians are human beings with human rights and that the conflict is at the very least tragic um, and that, you know, a ceasefire would be good right now. I think a lot of people don't totally appreciate why Gaza exists. Uh, Two million people crammed into this little this this little territory. It exists because the state of Israel was founded on a series of what virtually all historians, whether they would use this exact term or not, agree as an ethnic cleansing. It was really Israeli historians a generation ago um, who conclusively settled this. It used to be the kind of Israeli and Zionist propaganda narrative that you would hear, like if you were me growing up in, you know, suburban Jewish America, um, was that, um, you know, even among relatively peace-inclined families, um, the story you'd hear is that pre-1967 Israel, you know, simply existed as a Jewish democracy, left-leaning Jewish democracy under international law. Uh, it, you know, triumphantly came into being in, in the 48 War of Independence. The Arab states tried to destroy it. They failed. You know, they did again in 67. And that's when the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza begins. And uh, after that, you know, I think the, the standard kind of peacenik pro two state solution narrative that most Democrats have espoused, um, you know, says that that that's where the troubles really began. That's where Israel started to morally compromise itself by by settling those places um, and not coming up with a, a permanent, sustainable two state solution. I think the problem with this narrative, however well-intentioned it might seem, is that no, 48 Israel committed ethnic cleansing. It's extremely well-documented. I think the numbers of Palestinians driven from their homes is something like 700,000. Israel was primarily responsible for this. There's a sort of myth that, you know, Arab states told all these people to leave their homes, uh, and that's why they did, and they would destroy Israel and come back. Um, even to whatever minimal extent that myth may have a factual basis, it doesn't really excuse anything. Um, the UN partition plan that Israeli is the only UN resolution I think Israelis have ever uh, cited favorably in their entire history uh, called for a Jewish state on significantly less land than what we now think of as Israel proper. Um, large Palestinian areas were were seized 
annexed and ethnically cleansed uh, in 1948 and 1949 uh, in what Palestinians call the Nakba. So where did all those Palestinians go? A lot of them went to Jordan. Some of them went you know, further abroad. But an awful lot of them ended up crammed into Gaza and nobody else wanted them. Um, Gaza was under Egyptian occupation until the 67 war, but the Egyptians didn't want to absorb all these people, much as the Jordanians didn't want to absorb the Palestinian West Bank. Um, and the position of, you know, most every Arab country, most every Muslim country in the world was, uh, you know, that there should be a Palestinian state. And for a long time, there was no acceptance of the legitimacy of Israel, but at least, um, in Jordan, Egypt, and, you know, increasingly the, the Gulf Arab monarchies that throw money around the whole region, that's that's basically a moot point. Israelis like to say for a long time they don't accept our existence. That's that's done. You know, in fact, on the eve of this uh, horrific attack, Israel was very, very close to uh, a sort of uh, permanent, stepped-up military and diplomatic alliance with Saudi Arabia and the United States. I mean, which has been, you know, a de facto powerful regional bloc for quite a long time now, uh, you know, and which is united in, among other things, being very anti-Iran and Iran's satellites throughout the region, which include Hamas. Um, and uh, so so this is all just to say there is no Israel as we understand it, as the Jewish state that, you know, came into being in 1948 without an overcrowded Palestinian refugee camp in Gaza. The the two are inseparable. They that that's just how it's always been. And I I think that people who still espouse Zionism, liberal Zionism, let's call it, um, have a hard time wrapping their heads around this. You know that where are the now two million Palestinians supposed to go? Israel says they can't come back. Israel says they have no right of return um, to the the lands that their you know parents or grandparents were expelled from. Uh, half of these people, it should be said, are, are I think under the age of seventeen. So it's a it's a very young place. Um, they've lived their entire lives, you know, locked into this cage, basically, what people have called an open air prison. Um, it's been bombed every couple years. You know, Hamas, which is de facto in control of of Gaza, will um, periodically fire some rockets over the border, or you know, do something to provoke the Israelis and they'll respond by raining bombs on Gaza and killing usually an order of magnitude more people. Uh, and that's kind of been a predictable and dismal routine for at least the past decade or so. Um, this is on a whole other scale, though. And uh, it's quite shocking uh, what's happened. I mean, all of the previous wars in Gaza, I think the last was in 2021, were were extremely disturbing to watch. And you could see the seeds of what's happening now. But, you know, coming from my left Jewish, not Zionist perspective, it's not shocking to me that Israel is basically genocidal in its intent toward the Palestinians, nor is it shocking that American institutional Jewish life and American political life, including most Democrats, are broadly aligned with that. The truly shocking thing about the last week is how did they get Palestinians across this border fence into Israel proper? And how did they kill Israelis on this scale? Um, and, you know, you can fixate if you want on the, the bloodthirstiness of, of Hamas and, 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 and just how, you know, evil and, and inhumane they are. And I'm not going to, you know, fault anyone who, who wants to 
I mean, I understand why you see some of these images and there have been a lot of stories that have circulated that are questionable in provenance, but the stuff we know is true is plenty gruesome. And I, I you know, I, I think it's necessary I, to say that killing civilians is always wrong. Um, but I think it's very insufficient to say it as if, you know, the, the Hamas are the first and only ones to do this or the main ones doing this. You know, I mean, the the Israel's policy has been to kill Palestinian civilians for as long as there's been in Israel, and they're doing it on a scale we've never seen before now. But stipulating, to me, the shocking thing is not that Hamas was so brutal. The shocking thing is, how did Israel let this happen? How did they let their guard down? Everyone is shocked by that. By some accounts, and I don't know how reliable these are, Hamas was shocked by that. You know, there's a theory, and I, I can't speak to whether this is certainly true or not, that Hamas envisioned, you know, killing, you know, 20, 50 people, taking a, a, a couple dozen hostages, which would have been pretty shocking if they'd done that. But the the scale of the, the massacre and the scale of the hostage taking is on a level that, you know, I, I'm sure was shocking to them, as I think possibly the full extent of um, the the damage to lower Manhattan in um, 9-11 was, was possibly shocking to bin Laden. You know, I mean, you, you just don't expect to, to, to hit these all powerful military states that hard. Um, and so uh, along with mourning the dead um, and, and the hostages who were basically being treated as already dead, Israel is not interested in a sort of delicate negotiated, you know, operation or tactical anything to try to save the hostages. Israel is regarding the hostages as pre-dead so they can kill as many Palestinians as possible. And according to Hamas, I think yesterday or the day before, I think something like the, the last I heard about this was that nine Israeli hostages had died in an Israeli airstrike, according to Hamas. Now, I, we should stipulate as well that both Israel and Hamas probably say lots of things that aren't entirely true. Um, so, you know, I'm going with the best information we've got. But, um, but you know, fog of war is very real. Propaganda is very real. But suffice to say, Israel's priority is not saving the hostages. Israel's priority is, as they put it, destroying Hamas uh, and basically, I think, demonstrating before the whole world that there's no limit to how much violence they're willing to unleash against the Palestinians of Gaza in retaliation for what happened. And the trauma that Israelis and people with, you know, real or imagined relationships to Israel around the, the world and, and in the United States feel right now is not just the trauma of loss and death. Um, it's the trauma that I think is, as with 9-11, of, of, of thinking you lived in a more impregnable, safe, predictable world than you actually did, of thinking that... Um, the U.S. and or Israeli government, depending on which situation we're talking about, you know, was capable of generally protecting you and they didn't. And you are in shock. And for the Israeli government itself, um, and I'm sure the U.S. government, too, uh, there's a sense of, um, you know, we have to catastrophically overreact now to cover our asses, basically. I mean, if you think about Cheney's uh, infamous one percent doctrine. Uh, which which is kind of how we got into Iraq. Uh, the, the basic premise of the 1% doctrine was, um, you know, there's a lot of intelligence out there and normally you want to filter through it to, to get the good stuff. But if you get a scrap of intelligence and there's like a 1% chance it might be true 
after 9-11 and after the Bush administration's failure to prevent 9-11, even though they did have warnings, um, which they kind of brushed off, um, you know, you treat that 1% chance as if it's a 100% chance. And that is how we, among other things, got inv- got involved in Iraq, because, you know, they had these these little glimmers of intel suggesting maybe conceivably there was WMD and, you know, the sanest people going through it were like, this is not actionable intelligence. This is, you know, fraudulent bullshit, speculation, whatever. Um, but the, the, the Bush administration's attitude is we're not taking that chance. And on some level, we, we want to do this anyway. So we have highly motivated reasoning. And I kind of think that's, that's the danger right now that, you know, you have a bunch of uh, policymakers, military officers, media figures, propagandists in, in both Israel and the U.S. who, uh, you know, want to show that, um, that, 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 that who, who are shocked, embarrassed, angry and, and want to show that there's nothing they won't do in response. Yeah. Can can you talk uh, uh, briefly, you know, you, you mentioned the 48, you know, 67, but a, a little more recent history, you know, like how Hamas uh, was created and how, you know, uh, ben- Benjamin Netanyahu himself was was uh, funding, supporting Hamas, you know, as sort of this, as they would call it in Israel, like mowing the grass strategy, like the, like this idea that you could just keep a lid on the occupation, just perpetuate the status quo indefinitely. And, and all you would have to do is deal with a few rockets every now and then, and then bomb, you know, some people in, in, in Gaza or, or the, or the West Bank or wherever every now and then. And, and it would just be basically, you know, nothing to worry about more or less. Uh, and, and, and with the, with the explicit strategy, as I understood it, as I understand it, you can correct me, was that, you know, by, by like propping up these Islamist groups, uh, like Hamas and, and, and its predecessors in the seventies and the eighties, they could divide Palestinians from the, the, the PLO, the, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and thereby sort of divide and conquer basically to prevent a united Palestinian front from emerging and demanding like a, a, a Palestinian state a la Nelson Mandela of the African National Congress in South Africa. No, that's that's all broadly correct. Uh, and I, I should say I'm not particularly an expert on the political intricacies of, of Palestinian history. But but to the best of my understanding, that's all broadly correct. And, you know, the 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 original movement to liberate Palestine that became the PLO under Yasser Arafat uh, was basically a, a secular nationalist and, and left wing, uh, you know, third world liberation movement with, you know, ties to I mean, th- there were a lot of explicit parallels and links with, for instance, the Irish Republican Army, the the later, you know, provisional Irish Republican Army, um, you know, which had a kind of similar conception of the situation in, in Northern Ireland. Um, and, uh, and and with the African National Congress, as you mentioned, in South Africa, there, there were some very natural alignments between these groups. Hamas is a, you know, militant Islamist group. Um, it's, larger parallel group over the border in Egypt is is the Muslim Brotherhood, um, which, uh, you know, a decade ago, after the the uprising against Mubarak, who was the sort of longtime US backed secular strongman over Egypt, 
uh, you know, Egyptians elected a Muslim Brotherhood government, and then it was overthrown in a coup that Israel and uh, many elements in the U.S. foreign policy establishment and the Gulf states backed, uh, which brought the current Egyptian government under Sisi, a, a, another you know secular corrupt general and strongman to power. Uh, this is highly relevant because Egypt is the only country besides Israel that borders Gaza. And uh, a lot of discussion right now centers around uh, if the Palestinians are driven from Gaza, where do they go? The Egyptians don't want two million, you know, uh, Palestinians on their territory. They don't want, and I don't think as, you know, humane people, we should want an actual giant refugee camp in the middle of the Sinai Desert under the, you know, authority of, of General Sisi, uh, who is a murderer. Um, you know, that's that's a bleak scenario. And uh, driving the Palestinians into a scenario like that is ethnic cleansing, no less than, um, you know, killing them all where they stand in Gaza is. Uh, and I think people have to be serious about that. Where are the Palestinians supposed to go? You know, uh, and I mean, the, the one thing Israel is absolutely certain of is they're not supposed to go to Israel ever. Uh, and I'm sure they feel that way more than more strongly than they ever have. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Netanyahu was quite open about a strategy of of propping up uh, Hamas because for a long time they were seen as, you know, a force that could divide Palestinian society. There are parallels in um, how the U.S. has kind of played power politics across the Middle East. Um, and there are parallels as well with, you know, how the U.S. backed uh, Saudi uh, you know, Wahhabist Islamist groups to 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 prosecute the war in Afghanistan, the blowback of which, of course, was literally 9-11. Um, so, you know, history, history rhymes in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, I mean, one thing that is very different between the post 9-11 situation and now is that Bibi Netanyahu does not enjoy the kind of unanimous, unquestioning support of the Israeli public that uh, that George W. Bush uh, enjoyed after 9-11. Now, both of them were divisive figures, of course. Bush, less than a year earlier, had come to power in, uh, you know, the, the infamous 2000 election. Um, but as mad as liberals were about that, and rightly so, uh, that was basically banished from most people's memory after 9-11. Um, and his presidency had been fairly uneventful up until 9-11, the first, you know, eight months of it or whatever. Um, so, uh, you know, there was a period after 9-11, I mean, in the immediate wake, he had over 90% approval, which is yep. unfathomable for any any other president in our lifetime, you know. What, weren't there just massive protests against Bibi Netanyahu in Israel uh, as, as a result of uh, there? Well, well, the, the key context here I was getting to is that going back just over a week ago to before these attacks, Bibi was already embattled and unpopular at a level that, you know, Bush certainly didn't experience in his first year in office um, for reasons having very little to do with the occupation, uh, at least in a direct sense. Um, you know, Netanyahu has been on and off prime minister of, of Israel uh, for, you know, the last two decades or so. Uh, he's served longer than anyone else. He used to be a center-right politician who, uh, although well to the right of, of anyone, we would we would uh, support, um, you know, was seen as a, a kind of a, a reasonable and canny figure. 
Um, his reputation, just just in the context of Israeli domestic politics, has uh, you know taken a really nasty turn. There were uh, serious corruption allegations. He was prosecuted for them. He could conceivably face jail time. Um, and in order to, uh, th th there were a series of, um, you know, Israel's a parliamentary democracy, so elections get held, new governments have to be formed all the time. And I forget all the details, but in the last couple of years, there were, what, I don't know, like five five such elections. They were having real trouble forming a unity government. Um, it seemed many times like Bibi was over, but he came back uh, with a coalition that I think he would have considered beneath him for much of his career, uh, consisting of the most, you know, clownishly far right fringe parties. It would be as if, you know, as if George W. Bush or Mitt Romney, uh, in order to cling to power, decided they were going to, you know, make Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates their, you know, vice president, their secretary of state, their secretary of defense. They were just going to surround themselves with like the most, you know, January 6th MAGA lunatics. I, I stretch the analogy a bit, but I'm just trying to give a you know, basically, don't forget the LaRouche people, the, the LaRouche people would be perfect, too, <laughs> the, or, the, or the LaRouche people, perhaps. But, yeah, I'm just trying to create a like a vague sense for Americans of like, you know, if you think of Bush or Romney as kind of mainstream Republicans uh, and then you think of, of, of you know, M Marjorie Taylor Greene or whatever as, as the kind of loony fringe that that the party is now captive to, it would be as if you know, you pivoted from one of those to the other in order to to stay in power um, and and it, and put them in real positions of, of authority. And um, Bibi was trying to destroy Israel's independent judiciary, uh, you know, so that all basically so that he won't be held accountable for his corruption and he won't go to jail. Uh, and to hear Israeli centrists or liberals or leftists tell it, um, you know, I, I always feel a little uncomfortable calling Israel a democracy because it's an apartheid state and because Palestinian dispossession is so central to it. Having said that, let's stipulate that, you know, at least within the green line, Israel is a functioning democracy. It, it's a multi-party, you know, parliamentary state. Even the large Arab minority within the green line has parties and representation in parliament. Um, had recently formed coalitions. I, I don't say this to excuse anything, just to kind of accurately describe the country we're talking about. And yeah. if you if you stipulate that that counts as a democracy, BB for the last year has basically been waging war against Israeli democracy. He's been trying to turn it into something like Viktor Orban's illiberal democracy in Hungary. And unlike the occupation, which I think, you know, there's a range of feelings about in Israel, but um, but a broad consensus certainly doesn't believe in prioritizing ending the occupation over, you know, maximum security for Israelis. So whatever people may say about opposing settlements or supporting a two-state solution or whatever is all very abstract, I think. The bottom line is the status quo in which Gaza is blockaded and cut off and the West Bank, um, you know, is, is essentially run as an apartheid regime was acceptable to a critical mass of Israelis, including more liberal and centrist Israelis. What Bibi was doing, however, is a whole other story that was extremely divisive. And I don't know exact polling, but large swaths of Israeli society felt existentially threatened by this. And so did large swaths of diasporic and especially American Jewish society. You know, there's generally been, although it had been eroded over the last few years, 
a taboo against criticizing Israel, certainly in public, if you were an American Jew of, you know, any standing. That taboo was eroding very rapidly in the last year. And the reason it was, was that influential Israeli media figures, politicians, military leaders, intelligence leaders, you know, a large, respectable swath of Israeli society was basically telling their friends and counterparts in in America and in the diaspora, please criticize Israel. It's different this time. And, you know, it wasn't primarily about the occupation. It was about Bibi's corruption and his illiberalism and his, you know, attacks on the foundations of of what these people wanted Israel to be. But it was creating space where um, American Jews were were starting to question, um, you know, at least some forms of their support for Israel and where the media conversation was opening up and there were mass protests against Bibi. And this was the backdrop for when this attack happened. And what's been fascinating, what, what we can generally see in the week since is, as with post 9-11, Israeli society is united in wanting to essentially rain death on the Palestinians now um, and wanting to you know, feel safe and secure and avenge what happened a week ago. Israeli society is not remotely united on Bibi, though. Um, and there's, you know, moves to create a unity government. And I, I can't stress enough, whoever ends up being the prime minister, whether it's, you know, Benny Gantz or Yair Lapid or, or Bibi or anyone else, uh, it's going to be very bad for the Palestinians. Um, but yeah, Bibi is embattled and it does um, threaten his his freedom of action in some ways. Um, I'm sure he has to consider... For instance, is it a good idea to launch the ground invasion that, you know, Israel is calling up reserves to potentially do? Because there's a very good chance it will be a quagmire and many Israelis will die uh, horrible deaths. And, um, you know, politically, is that really something that, uh, that, that you know, Bibi wants to deal with right now? I think that for the longest time, but, you know, the, the anger at Bibi now is not just over what it was a week ago, you know, the the corruption, the, the judicial reform and all that. It's newfound raging anger over his failure to protect Israelis. And one plausible argument one can make is why was Israel undefended in the South? Because um, Bibi's, you know, top far right ministers, Smotrich and Ben Gvir, uh, who are openly genocidal, you know, settlers, um, uh, you know, were prioritizing uh, the security of, of, of the settlements in the West Bank and were deploying more and more IDF units there. Um, so, you know, whether or not you care about the human rights of the Palestinians in the West Bank or Gaza, uh, there's certainly an argument that putting these extremist settlers in the positions of, you know, real authority over Israeli security that, that Bibi did, uh, for his own cynical political reasons has led to mass death for Israelis. And I think many Israelis are, are clear on that, um, in a way that, you know, even two decades after 9-11, I feel like it's still relatively hard to say, well, you know, there's the conspiracy people who think Bush did 9-11 or whatever. And there was the kind of incredible moment in the 2016 um, Republican primaries when, you know, uh, Jeb Bush said on a stage that his brother had kept America safe. And Trump said, well, no, he didn't. What about 9-11? And people like <laughs> applauded Trump and the media, the mainstream media was like, how dare he? How dare he said that? And Jeb was clearly shocked. Because for you know, fifteen years, the the Bush has basically expected no one to say that, uh, and you you got to hand it to Trump in this case. He <laughs> he said an unsayable and basically true thing, and I think it opened the debate a little. But even after that, 
I don't feel like Americans by and large see 9-11 primarily in terms of Bush's security failure. Um, whereas that is the immediate debate that's being held in Israel right now. Um, and and then not just, I mean, as I should say, to, to your literal question, also because, um, you know, Bibi basically was thought that this status quo of Hamas running Gaza and, and periodically doing these quote unquote, you know, mowing the grass campaigns against them was a sustainable way to keep Israelis safe. And of course, that strategy is now totally discredited. Uh, so there's a lot of anger about that, too, I think. Can can we uh, talk, talk for a minute about the 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 international context? Um, you know, right after the attack, I think we saw basically lockstep support for for Israel from the the United States from the EU mo- like most of the EU governments um you know uh most mainstream publications in the in the US and in and out of it and it seemed like you know a kind of you know, 9/11 style the post 9/11 style of just like building for this this sort of like bloodthirsty uh uh, uh backlash but it, it really does seem to me that, that 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 has really faded away quite quickly, even over the last like couple of days. You you look at like the Washington Post or New York Times or Financial Times um, or the coverage in Israel, and there's a lot of hesitation about doing, especially what you're talking about, David, a ground invasion, which could be very uh, a, a, a terrible, you know, house by house street fighting. You know, like you think about what like the United States in, in Mosul um, with the Battle of Fallujah in 2004, you know, like that that was grim. And a lot of people died. A lot of American and, and, and coalition soldiers died in that in that fighting. And, um, you know, the the idea, I think the initial impulse was like, we're just going to solve this once and for all. We're going to clean out Gaza. We're going to get rid of the Palestinians. It's not going to be our problem anymore. And now the international consequences of that are starting to sort of like come home and people are starting to like step back slightly. We, we heard Biden say, you know, like, let's remember that not every, not every Palestinian is a member of Hamas and like, we shouldn't kill, you know, like innocent civilians, even though that's what Israel has been doing. Supposedly like 1800 people killed, um, you know, hospital bombed in Gaza, like the only, uh, NICU, you know, uh, 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 intensive care unit for, for, for babies was shut down. And, you know, we'll, we probably won't know for a long time how, how horrible the consequences of this have been, but it's, it seems like that, that, that initial push is really kind of already started to sort of lose its momentum. And, um, how, how do you see the, um, you know, the, the, the international context here in terms of the support, you know, United States being historically for the last, you know, 20, 30 years, the, the, the basically no questions asked backer of, of Israel and, uh, you know, the rest of, um, its, its allies throughout Europe and elsewhere in terms of how they're, uh, thinking about this campaign and what, how it might go. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly hope you're right about that. And I, I'd see some of the same indicators as you. I think that um, it's very hard to be optimistic in the current climate um, yeah. because what's happened is so horrible. It's so fresh. Um, 
we know a lot more people are going to die, mostly Palestinians. Um, and there's really no no scenario on earth where where that's not true. Um, but at the same time, you know, trying to be sober and analytical about it, um, you know, the Palestinians don't have a lot of um they don't have a lot of global leverage. They don't, you know, the there are people around the, the global left and the so-called Arab street, if people still use that term, who who care about the Palestinians, but you know, they don't really have a lot of governments that have their back. Um, and certainly not like Israel does. They don't have the money on their side. They don't have the military might on their side. Um, but, and, and it's easy to, you know, see that and catastrophize and think, well, under the current circumstances with the current rhetoric coming out of Israel and its supporters around the world, um, we're going to see a genocide. And I do think that there is genocidal intent and we're going to see steps in that direction and worse carnage than, than we've seen in previous campaigns. Um, but, you know, we live in a dynamic world where there are reactions and, and where, where actions have equal and opposite reactions and where, um, you know, national interests of various states do come into play. And when you think about the actual interest of basically every concerned state, perhaps including Israel itself, but certainly Egypt, Jordan, the Gulf states, the US, all Western European countries, um, all of them have an interest in getting this back to normal as quickly as they possibly can. Uh, whether that's realistic or not, we'll see. Uh, but, you know, and, and Israel has to be responsive to that on some level. You know, I mean, the, the, the international context, as I said earlier, was that Israel, Saudi Arabia and the U.S. were about to, you know, form a major defense pact, which, by the way, you know, was the Biden administration following through on a Jared Kushner initiated plan, which is wild when you think about it. Uh, <laughs> but it was going to happen. Uh, and, um, you know, one theory of why, why now, why did this happen now, which is contested, but is circulating is that, you know, the goal of Hamas and Hamas's sponsors in Iran, uh, perfectly rational from Iran's point of view, uh, was to, was to stop that from happening and to sort of drive a wedge between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Um, it remains to be seen whether that has happened. Um, but it's hard to imagine there's any other country in the world besides Israel that actually wants to see Israel commit a full-scale genocide right now. And not because everyone is so humane, but because the the consequences will be incredibly destabilizing. You know, Jordan, uh, a large percentage of which is, in fact, you know, multi-generational Palestinian refugees from the original Nakba, the Jordanian monarchy, uh, you know, which is, which is backed by the CIA and MI6 and so on, doesn't um, doesn't want to see mass demonstrations in the streets of Amman, which would be incredibly destabilizing. Um, Egypt doesn't want another, you know, uh, Tahrir Square Arab revolution on its hands. That's probably uh, the, the the core concern of the CC government is not letting anything like that happen. Um, they also don't want 2 million Palestinian refugees. Um, the U.S. doesn't want, you know, the world media covering that and, and those people dying in the desert. Um, Western European countries obviously don't want to take more refugees from the Muslim world, and no one wants optics of, you know, people drowning in the Mediterranean every day, trying to get to Italy or Greece. Um, you know, the Gulf monarchies may be brutal totalitarian states, and they may hate Iran above all and want, uh, you know, in alignment with Israel to help contain Iran, but they, they have publics they're responsible to as well, uh, even in limited ways, and they don't, they don't, you know, want to see 2 million Palestinians massacred. So, 
you know, Israel, I think what I want to believe is that and then, you know, not to flatter the Biden administration, who's at least public facing actions have been pretty appalling so far. Um or or Democrats writ large, the you know left fringe of the party generally accepted. Um, but you know, I don't think Jake Sullivan wants to see any of that happen either, whether for stability's sake or uh, you know, because on some level he's a liberal and understands that he doesn't he shouldn't go down in history as the author of a literal genocide. Uh, I assume you know. I know he's close with Ben Rhodes or has been in the past. Ben Rhodes is out of government and Ben Rhodes's position publicly is this would be a horrible thing to happen. And I'm sure many other progressive commentators basically hold that view as well. And the left flank of the party is starting to say things like that, AOC and Bernie and, you know, Rashida Tlaib and so on. So I, I think, you know, protests will happen. I think the emotional register of the past week for Jews around the world and, um, you know, has been uh, and and for the American government that generally sympathizes with with them is uh, has been, you know, one of shock and horror and mourning and the worst day of, you know, Jews being killed since the Holocaust, which is, you know, with with all the other contexts still, when you think about it for a second, a, a pretty shocking uh, thing that that you can see why a lot of people who who aren't steeped in all this geopolitical context find that very traumatizing and hard to sit with. And um, so, you know, that's been the emotional register of the last week. But you imagine a week from now, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, the story, and it's going to be the biggest story in the world, is going to be about Israel just mass murdering Palestinians. And I think the political pressures that will create in both the Middle East and the West, I hope, I mean, this is me being as optimistic as possible. It's still a very bleak scenario. Uh, I hope that will cause at least back channel, you know, Western governments and, and and Arab world governments to tell the Israelis, look, like, we understand this wasn't a normal attack on you. And we understand you're going to kill a lot more Palestinians than you have in the past, you know, half dozen of these or whatever. But there's a limit, you know. Uh, this is so bleak, David. This is just so bleak. Let's pause for a moment. Just, just because, uh, no, it's it's devastating. Um, and, and I mean, how, how how sad and pathetic that these are our leaders in, in this powerful country that's funding Israel's arms and has so much influence if it wanted to use it that um, it can't even, I, I mean, we, we should talk about the, the the State Department being told they can't actually call for ceasefire and to stop using language like ceasefire. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> just... So I, I got to hand it to Jamal Bowman, whose immediate re reaction to that list of banned terms was to tweet all of them and call for a ceasefire. <laughs> nice, and I mean, nice. it's it's yeah, parodic. Yeah. It's like, I can't imagine anyone involved in that policy, like as soon as it came out, was like, oh yeah, this makes us look great. This, this is a clear success, what we're doing right now. I think a lot of... Uh, the Biden administration and probably Netanyahu's government right now are in a certain amount of disarray. They're panicky, you know, they're yeah. which, which, you know, to attribute some strategic logic to Hamas is probably what they were going for. Let's freak them out. Let's get them off balance. I'm sure it factored into Hamas's considerations that Bibi was already so embattled domestically. You know, I mean, you have to attribute some I mean, it's a lot of the rhetoric on all sides turns everyone into just, you know, inhuman monsters, animals, as they said. But actually, we are talking about a bunch of rational actors responsible to different constituencies. And I don't want this to be, look, my loyalty is to human life and 
to the left ideal of, of ending the occupation. Um, and I just want to make that very clear because I know I'm speaking in somewhat cynical realist terms as uh, on some of the things I'm saying. From a cynical realist perspective, though, yeah, of course, the U.S. government, it's kind of pathetic and they should you know, stand up for the rights of Palestinians right now. And I hope at least backstage somebody is. Um, but, you know, understand the constraints they're under and the constraints that any Israeli faction is under right now. The Israeli public wants Palestinian blood. That's what happens when something like this happens. It's predictable. Cooler heads need to restrain it. But that is the basic political reality they're responding to. And the U.S. government, um, you know, is accountable to a public that generally sympathizes with. And I'm not just talking about yeah. Jews or even evangelicals. Right. I think most Americans broadly see the Israelis as, you know, people like us on some level and the Palestinians as as dehumanized. And they're racist, David, is what you're saying. <laughs> Basically, that's they're racist. But, I mean, fundamentally, <laughs> they're racist. But these are just the political uh, conditions everyone is operating under. It shouldn't surprise yeah. us that the basic position, it shouldn't surprise us because it's, you know, consistent U.S. policy for decades, right. that the basic you know, position of the Biden administration as we stand with Israel, what we should fight for, hope for, protest for, advocate for in our writing and our podcasts is, you know, a ceasefire, um, the yeah. highlighting of the human cost of what's happening to the Palestinians, um, the end of it as quickly as possible, the shaming of the, the people whose agenda is nakedly genocidal, uh, some sort of restoration of normalcy. That is really the best case scenario that we can get there in the relatively near future because bad yeah. shit's going down. And, and then, and, uh, yeah. and then, and uh, hopefully, uh, trying to to persuade as many people as possible that the violence will always continue until the occupation is over, right? Until the root cause is addressed. Yes, um, although I don't but, think there's a very receptive audience for it now. But yes, we should keep saying that. Yeah, on the left, we often don't have a very receptive audience for our our principles and thoughts, but we got to do that anyway. I just want to, you know, mention briefly that, um, you know, we've had you on for discussion, discussing Ukraine several times and, and there's, there's the realpolitik there as well. Um, but, uh, like that situation, this situation might have a complex history and complex geopolitical uh, maneuvering and a lot of things that we don't know what's going to happen. But I think in both cases, as leftists, the, the kind of normative and, and moral analysis isn't that complicated, actually. And it's interesting to think about in the context of the left, because a lot of leftists um, gave us shit for, for being on the side of the Ukrainians, who, interestingly, I think, are in the asymmetrical position of, of taking on a bigger power that, that is committing, you know, war crimes against them and, and it is, you know, threatening their ability to be self-determining democratic people. Um, the obvious analog here is the Palestinians, right? For, for those liberals that would support the Ukrainians, um, you know, the obvious logic of democracy, self-determination, human rights applies to the Palestinians in this instance. And yet you have liberals who just flip to Israel's side here. And then you have leftists on the other side who are pro-Russia or who uh, don't want the U.S. to be involved because of imperialism and so forth. But I think all those complexities aren't actually um, a big deterrence to seeing the simple moral logic in each situation, don't you think? Well, I agree with you. I, I stand by that basic moral assessment of, of the war in Ukraine. But to complicate it even further, um, you know, Volodymyr Zelensky himself has come out strongly in favor of the Israeli side without really much nuance. No, I and vice versa, vice versa. Putin, Putin is on the side of the Palestinians here, right? I mean, to the yeah, I mean, let's not overstate <laughs> it, but to the extent that any world has, has right, you know right. made critical statements, I mean, from Putin's point of view, you know, Israel 
and the U.S., uh, you know, have have uh, this is a failed policy and Putin has some alignment with Iran and and uh, is courting the developing world uh, or the global south, I guess we call it now for um, uh, for support with with a fair bit of success. I mean, if you look at the kind of global and go- governmental uh, stances on the Ukraine war, there's a, you know, basically the the industrialized West stands with Ukraine and the um, global south stands with if not with Russia, then certainly not with Ukraine, basically, you know, thinks there should be a ceasefire and and, and thinks that the U.S. backing Ukraine is, is uh, you know, and, and they have both both because these are parts of the world that resist Western imperialism and, and have that in their histories. And also because of the, um, you know, the, the inflation, the, the, the food shocks, all the things that have come out of this terrible war, they have rational reasons to feel that way. Uh, and because of ties that Putin has cultivated with, you know, Brazil's leadership and India's leadership and so on. There's there's a there's an underlying geopolitical logic to that. From Zelensky's point of view, I'm not happy to see him coming out in favor of the Israelis, but I also don't think it's that important or anyone should be that shocked by it. I mean, first yeah. of all, Zelensky is a post-Soviet Jew. They overwhelmingly identify with Israel for deep historical reasons that shouldn't be too hard to understand, including that they probably all have relatives who live there. I mean, a huge number of post-Soviet Jews ended up moving to Israel. A large chunk of Israel's population is Russian speakers who were born in the in the Soviet Union. Um, you know, it makes perfect sense that those ties would mean something. That's also true of Russia. And in fact, Israel has been um, very on the fence in the Russia-Ukraine war because Israel has um, a very complicated position. First of all, they have a lot of people with dual Ukrainian and dual Russian citizenship and who have a lot of personal ties to both countries, including some very rich and well-connected people in government, uh, including people like our old buddy Roman Abramovich, who you know has dual Russian-Israeli citizenship, uh, also Portuguese, but that let's not even get into that. Um, and, uh, you know, so so Israel has been on the fence and has been sort of, you know, has triangulated, has had trouble figuring out, you know, they, they'll condemn the invasion, but not that strongly. You know, they obviously want to be on the side of, of the U.S. and the Western states that back them, but they also don't want to piss off Russia too much, in part because, you know, they have a sort of tacit arrangement with Russia, which controls the airspace over Syria, where Russia lets them, you know, bomb certain targets in Syria periodically, and they don't want to upset that. Um, so, you know, the, Israel, I, and then both the Russians and the Ukrainians have had a sort of propagandistic interest in casting the other side in the war as the real Nazis and themselves as the real friends of the Jews, which of course means friends of Israel. So this has created a very strange dynamic where these two conflicts connect. Um, what Zelensky has said that I think some of his more articulate left critics have occasionally, you know, pointed out um, is that he wants and expects Ukraine to be a country more like Israel, by which he means a country in a kind of permanent state of military readiness. Um, and uh, that's that's something he's been quite explicit about in making that comparison, even before all this. Um, and, you know, you can, it's, there's like the level in which you're absolutely right, Alexius, that this is a situation where the basic principle to defend is international law, sovereign borders, um, don't invade countries, commit war crimes, and try to annex territory. I mean, I think those should all be bedrock views of anyone on the left, and they should lead ultimately to sympathizing with the Ukrainians and with the Palestinians, regardless of any specific 
grievances one might have with either society or government. Um, you know, no one is saying that Hamas is perfect and no one is saying not that it's a perfect analogy, but the Azov battalion is perfect either. But I think on the principle of bedrock sovereignty, we can, you know, know where we stand. On the other hand, in the, you know, imagination of, of the Ukrainians, in some ways it is closer to Israel because I think both Israel and Ukraine see themselves as these kind of societies on the ramparts of Western civilization with, you know, barbarians at the gates, which means the, the, the supposedly Tatar Russians to the east of Ukraine. And it means the Arab and Muslim world, the Israelis. And they see themselves as like, we fight them here. So you don't have to fight them in Europe, Western Europe or America. And, um, you know, that's horrible, fundamentally racist rhetoric in, in both cases. Um, which is just to say, uh, you know, nothing is ever quite as simple as we want it to be. Yeah. I was, you know, I was recently in Finland you know, which has uh, joined NATO as a result of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, a, th- a thing about Finland being neutral for many years is that it was armed to the teeth, that it, they have conscription, a very large military, you know, relative to their quite small population, of course. Um, and, you know, we're just like they they'd built all these bunkers and all of these, you know, like anti-tank defenses and stuff like that. And then the reason was that, you know, Finland was a Russian colony for for like a century, over a century, I believe, and then was invaded by the Soviets in the Winter War. And, uh, you know, that prompted the, the the Finns to fight on the side of the Nazis in World War Two. Um you know, but the, but but then later, you know, to serve as as a as a sort of like neutral neutral location later, where they you know negotiated the Helsinki Accords uh, between um, you know the 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 Soviets and and the and the West, uh, basically as a sort of like uh, third party that anyone could accept. But you know, anyway, you see now where where like this sort of like thinking comes from, and people when they're when they're faced with this sort of uh, you know very credible threat of aggression, uh, tend to hunker down and become more militaristic and aggressive and less you know accepting of you know compromise and seeing the other the other guy's point of view that sort of thing. Um, we're we're getting a little short of time here, but I, I I wanted to ask you know maybe one or two more questions, David, uh, on the uh, the the question of like you know where this goes. You know what what strikes me like why I'm sort of you know the 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 moral aspect of this. I think we've covered it pretty well. It's bad when you kill innocent civilians. Like period doesn't matter who they are it's there's never any justification for it and uh and I, and I would point out by the way that there's an important difference between the Ukraine war and Hamas that Ukraine is fighting by and large the Russian military whereas like Hamas was like just attacking like a, a music festival and like that's a that's I think like an important distinction to make but uh when you move to a sort of like real realist, real politic, a sort of cold blooded kind of Machiavellian view of this thing, I it, it just jumps out to me that, uh, you know, this whole terrible atrocity and Israel's bad security situation, it's all rooted in the occupation in so many ways, in the way that, uh, you know, um, 
Gaza being an open air prison fuels support for Hamas because it's so unfair and so desperate. And then how uh, Netanyahu has propped up Hamas with money and jobs and and supplies and stuff because that's a way to split the Palestinians. And then how his uh, dependence on these super extreme right wing settler parties means that he's, you know, the government's sending the troops over to these, you know, to protect these settlers, which have been doing basically what are like pogroms in in the West Bank, you know, just like wilding out and shooting, uh, you know, and, and killing um, Palestinians in the West Bank. Which and, let me say, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I feel like it says so much about the basic media failures and the basic, you know, inequalities and how this is all understood in the West. Why don't we hear about those pogroms unless you're like, you know, follow very particular lefty or Palestinian news sources? You know, you're very unlikely to certainly not to get the kind of saturation cable coverage that that what just happened did. Um, and, uh, you know, now that everyone's attention is focused, I think what Israel's about to do with Gaza is going to get some level of, of, of you know, top priority international attention. But, yeah, the, it, you're absolutely right. Israel has been encouraging routine pogroms in the occupied West Bank in the last few years. And um, I would be shocked if almost anyone in Washington knows or cares. And that really speaks. And, and also, ju- just to, I mean, in light of what happened with the Hamas attack, uh, Israel gave a bunch of uh, weapons to settlers to go do vigilante justice, or, you know, just to, to kill a bunch of Palestinians in the West Bank. And that's been kind of lost in, in the news cycle because of what's happening in Gaza as well. But that's just that just fits that fits with the kind of uh, mentality um, that's that's been ongoing there. Right. Yeah. But so my my question is, do you do you see any prospect of it if it's sinking in even to people who may be like quite racist, like Zionist types of the the like Israel will never have security uh, unless it can reach like a permanent just settlement with the Palestinians and end the occupation in in some way, whether it's a, you know, two state solution, a one state solution, some kind of federation or whatever. But like as long as you keep doing this, there's going to be an omnipresent threat of Hamas carrying out some kind of crazy shit like this and 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 killing, you know, hundreds or thousands of of Israelis. Uh, I don't know. What's what are your thoughts? I mean, I certainly hope that's the conclusion that people come to, because the only real alternative is, you know, is genocide. Uh, Yeah, to to be as blunt as possible. And uh, I, I, you know, the fear right now is that genocide is being um, mainstreamed and legitimized uh, before our eyes. And my quote unquote optimism is that there will be enough, um, you know, both rational and moral um, resistance to that that will mount in in the days and weeks to come that, uh, you know, ultimately people will understand that's not what's going to happen. And it's a non-starter. And it's just a question of how many Palestinians die in the meantime. Um, But I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, short of short of that, uh, Israel is forced to come, you know, to develop some way to live with them and the way that it has been doing it of, you know, periodic mowing the grass is uh is is has proven to be unsustainable um what saddens me is that 
that probably is the status quo that in the you know best realistic case scenario they'll they'll try to get back to um but there probably are a lot of people in the public who who don't want to go back to that and and um and so it's a very perilous time i mean i i think from the point of view of people like me in my position such as it is i i i mean i think our job is to is to keep conscientious americans progressive americans jews um you know progressive largely liberal american jews um from losing their their moral and rational bearings right now to remind them of 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 the real stakes here to remind them uh of of the atrocities that have been committed and will be committed in our name um and to uh say no i mean i don't i don't see anything else we can do right now really oh i was just gonna say you know as a as a as a as a closing comment for myself that um you know i was very disappointed with the the initial response from the biden administration of like just sort of knee jerk backing Israel's every move. But I, I do think that the, the Biden team is a lot more susceptible to public pressure than, than previous administrations, either Obama, especially Trump or, or, or George W. Bush, of course. And so I think that, you know, continuing to like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've seen a pattern where, for instance, if you yell at Biden enough, he joins a picket line and it's a great thing (laughs) when he does. And maybe we wish he was Bernie Sanders and he joined it on day one. But you can also imagine, you know, Bill Clinton or someone never doing that. And and, and in fact, if the basic dynamic with Biden and the left seems to be you yell at him for a few weeks and then he actually kind of does the thing you wanted. That's a dynamic that we should keep in mind as we think about how to proceed now. Yeah. 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 And I, and I think in doing it there, there, I mean, we could do several other episodes, but just as a final thought, because your piece, I really thought it was, um, it had the real politique in there, David, but it also was such a, a beautiful kind of threading the needle of, of complexities with, um, being an American Jew dealing with the atrocities committed by Hamas and yet wanting to immediately also contextualize the root causes and understand, you know, where we go from here, given all that. And I I think the 9-11 analogy is interesting because security and self-defense and I stand with Israel and the the right to self-defense, it's still 20 years later coded in the same 9-11 language as like, let's go kill a bunch of people out of bloodlust and that's going to make everyone safer. Which, besides the war crimes and the ethnic cleansing and the genocide at stake here, is just the obvious, like, just objectively false understanding of what provides security as opposed to insecurity. And as we try to, like, combat the Biden administration and others who are are trying to support Israel, which conflates a bunch of people, including non-Zionists, including Israeli Arabs, including people against the occupation in Israel and here – I think there's another way to think through uh, being friends to everyone in the region and, and understanding that that um, security for everyone is actually um, supported by stopping the violence uh, at all costs and, and trying to support uh, the ultimate end of the, that root cause, that apartheid state. Right. Well, I, you know, I appreciate your kind words for my piece. And one thing I've been thinking about the last 48 hours or so is um, you know, not to, not to be, you know, too self-congratulatory or whatever, but like my piece kind of shockingly has gotten just about entirely positive response. 
And I think about what it would have meant, you know, in the piece, I, I don't in any way want to compare myself to Susan Sontag. I'm no Susan Sontag. <laughs> but in the piece I talk about, as, as my friend Spencer Ackerman does in his book, Reign of Terror, um, you know, how Sontag was one of the voices of sanity and reason in the wake of 9-11, and she was pilloried for it. And it took, you know, years after her death for her reputation to recover. And Spencer uh, wrote a, a, a Substack post, or not Substack, but, you know, newsletter post uh, the other day, um, you know, basically saying, if this is the new 9-11, like be Susan Sontag. So in the spirit of being Susan Sontag, I'm struck. Actually, my piece has been very well received. Now, it was pitched at basically a wide swath of the left from, you know, let's say the the radically anti-colonial wing who might have celebrated the initial Hamas incursion to um, people who were appalled by that and uh, think that, you know, and feel alienated from the left as a result. And I, you know, and everyone in between. And I, I was sort of pitching something that I hoped people across that spectrum would understand. I, you know, I don't expect to persuade the right, obviously. Um, but, uh, and I, and I, I think I succeeded in that. And I think one thing to be relatively optimistic about, even though it feels like there's a lot of backsliding from progress that had maybe been made, and there's a lot of internal divisions on the left over what's happened in the last week, still in, in analogizing this to 9-11, I think there is a much, much more robust intellectual and activist left now than there was in 2001. I think that generational project makes a difference. I think that um, there are things that are sayable in the past week, at least in certain contexts, that were a lot harder to say. And I think my piece and the reaction to it testifies to that as to other very good pieces I've read in the last week. Um, uh, and, and I also think that um, we have 9-11 as precedent you know, in a way that you'd be sort of hard pressed for most Americans to to name what what the previous equivalent was at the time. You know, we we have, in fact, seen how this plays out. We have many of us anyway, internalized, you know, the 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 provocative title of my piece, but it is phrased as a question is, have we learned nothing since 9-11? Well, I think a lot of people have learned nothing or have forgotten what they've learned. But I think a lot of people haven't. Uh, a lot of people actually, you know, have had some time to including myself, to process things we were naive or misguided about in the wake of 9-11 um, and to, you know, learn more about the world and about the U.S. and the Muslim world and, and Israel and, and uh, you know, what does and doesn't make sense in foreign policy. And I think that those voices have more ability to be heard now than they did then and will be heard sooner and louder uh, so in that sense, I, I, I hope that we can avoid catastrophe on, on that scale. But, uh, but I don't think that's something to be complacent about at all. I think things are quite bad right now. Well, I think we can probably uh, leave it there. Um, David Cleon, uh, thanks for coming on the show. We will link to your article and uh, a few others in the show notes. But uh, yeah, much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. I, I I hope we should do this sometime when things are a little bit less um, uh, apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wrong. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Agreed. That'd be Agreed. great. It's a date. It's a date. Yeah, <laughs> looking Thanks. forward to it. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.